welcome to Monsters Among Us. I'm your guide, Derek Hayes. Hi, my name is Legend. I'm from West California. Hi, Derek. I wanted to tell you a story that happened to me at my grandpa's a pretty long time ago. So I was in my grandpa's cellar where he told us not to go for some reason. And we went in there to search for my weird porcelain doll. And uh, when I was in there, we were just searching around. And all of a sudden, my sister says, look at that dude. And so we all look up, and there was just a random guy standing there. He was messing around in one of our boxes that we had. And he was, like, playing with something. And I threw a rock at him, and he looked at me. But the rock went, like, right through him. I got pretty scared, so we just kept saying, go away, and he crawled up into the insulation and disappeared. Thank you for your time, and I love your podcast a lot. I listen to it with my mom every time we're in the car. Thank you. Bye. Thanks, buddy. I gotta say, you're much more brave than I would have been. I guarantee you I would have ran at the first sight of this guy rummaging through that box at your age. Now I have an amazing show lined up for you guys this evening. I know I say that often, but tonight, I really mean it. And I also have some big news to share, as well. But first, let's kick things off with a subject people have been asking for, for quite some time. The following is Olivia's call, from Washington State. Hi, dear. First of all, I'd like to say this is by far one of my favorite podcasts, and you're doing an excellent job. My name is Olivia, and I am from the West Seattle area. This happened when I was six years old, so this would have been around 2002, 2003. We were moving into, this, into our new house. Uh, actually, this would have been at the point we were more settled into it, due to it being so long ago, I could not give time of year or really much description uh, beyond what I witnessed. This is honestly a bit of a scarring memory for me. And I hope this would be a bit of a way to release it. But regardless, I remember my mother's room and especially her bathroom having an extremely just negative energy. I don't remember why I had had to go into her bathroom, but I had told myself not to be scared and I just left a door, just river open maybe an inch. I went into the bathroom and in second the door was pushed open a bit. I noticed movement out of my peripheral in my eyes. I looked up and in the mirror I saw what I at the time described as an iguana human. It would be about seven feet tall based off how tall it was in the mirror and the size of my mother's bathroom. And this sounds crazy, but it was also it wore a trench coat and old hat, as I would say when I was a child. And, you know, I, I could only see its face because of that. And I promptly ran downstairs screaming to my mother because uh, I recall when I turned around, it was not there. And I would have chalked it up to a childhood you know, overactive imagination, but it was so deeply scarring for me. I I just have never been able to. The old hat I will now be able to describe as a... So, yeah, that's my story, and thank you for accepting my call. Uh, I hope you're having a wonderful time. Thank you. Thank you, Olivia. I finally get to share some crazy info I've been sitting on. Hopefully you haven't heard about it. Back in 1934, a man claimed that he discovered a lost city. Catacombs built beneath Los Angeles by the lizard people of L.A. Lizard people's catacomb city hunted. 
Engineers sink shaft under Fort Moore Hill to find maze of tunnels and priceless treasures of legendary inhabitants. Busy Los Angeles, although little realizing it in the hustle and bustle of modern existence, stands above a lost city of catacombs filled with incalculable treasure and imperishable records of a race of humans further advanced intellectually than the highest type of present-day peoples. In the belief of G. Warren Schufelt, geophysicist mining engineer now engaged in an attempt to wrest from the lost city deep in the earth below Fort Moore Hill the secrets of the lizard people of legendary fame in the medicine lodges of the American Indian. So firmly does Schufelt and a little staff of assistants believe that a maze of catacombs and priceless golden tablets are to be found beneath downtown Los Angeles that the engineer and his aides have already driven a shaft 250 feet into the ground, the mouth of the shaft being on the old Banning property on North Hill Street, overlooking Sunset Boulevard, Spring Street, and North Broadway. I can already hear some of you salivating. But don't get too excited. There's more info you need to hear. Schufelt earned the legend of the lizard people after his radio x-ray had led him hither and yon over an area extending from the public library on West 5th Street to the Southwest Museum on Museum Drive at the foot of Mount Washington. I knew I was over a pattern of tunnels, the engineer explained yesterday, as well as the position of deposits of gold. Then Schufelt was taken to Little Chief Greenleaf. The Indian provided the engineer with a legend, which, according to both men, dovetails exactly with what Schufelt say he has found. Spoiler alert, it's not lizard people. According to the legend as imparted to Schufeld by Macklin, the radio x-ray has revealed the location of one of three lost cities on the Pacific coast, the local one having been dug by the lizard people after the Great Catastrophe, which occurred about 5,000 years ago in the form of a huge tongue of fire, which came out of the southwest, destroying all in its path, the path being several hundred miles wide. A lost city, dug with powerful chemicals by the lizard people instead of pick and shovel, was drained into the ocean, where its tunnels began, according to the legend. The lizard people, the legends has it, regard the lizard as a symbol of long life. Their city is laid out like a lizard, according to the legend. Its tail to the southwest, far below Fifth and Hope Streets, its head to the northeast at Lookout and Marta Streets, according to Schufelt and the legend. Believe it or not, that actually came from an L.A. Times article from back on January 29th of 1934. And the misspelled headline on this article, Lizard People's Catacomb City Hunted. So it seems that these lizard people, this engineer referred to, were believed to be normal human beings that simply worshipped a lizard, and not a race of half-man, half-reptilian. But that did not stop people from talking, and from seeing actual lizard people. I can't say that I've actually heard a first-hand account myself of these things, but I do recall an episode of the hit show Monsters and Mysteries in America that covered this very legend. Here is one of those encounters that was featured in that episode. In Anaheim, California, one November night in 2008, Angelique McQueen was walking her dog when she found herself face-to-face -face with lizard-like creatures emerging from the sewer drain. Growing up, I had never heard of anything like a reptoid. I had never heard of anything underground or living underground. I never believed reptoids existed until that night, and uh, definitely made a believer out of me. On November 27th, just like any other night, I decided to take my dog for a walk. It was a little chilly, and so I put on a heavier coat. As I was walking my dog, I got a very strange sensation that, that something wasn't right. It's one of those feelings that, you know, danger. Like, maybe I shouldn't go this way. Maybe I should take a turn. I look over down in the drain. I notice something. And I see two red eyes glowing, staring at me. It had a round head, glowing red eyes, a pit bull type of head. I couldn't make sense of what I was looking at. It's something I've never seen before. And before I could even think of anything, it pounced right in front of me. The fangs that I saw on this thing, it could have just devoured a person. It was a, uh, like, very 
evil, sinister, something that just nothing that I've ever, ever felt. That clip was featured on season three, episode two of that series. And I can't say what Olivia saw that night, but she's certainly not alone in claiming to have seen it. So thank you again, Olivia, for taking the time to share that call. And before we move on to our next call, I should mention that the article in the previous section was read slash performed by David Flora of Blurry Photos Podcast. And since his name was brought up, I guess now would be as great a time as any to announce that the Kickstarter campaign for our upcoming documentary, Shadows in the Desert, High Strangeness in the Borrego Triangle, is finally live. So hit up the show notes or search the title over at kickstarter.com and become a supporter today. This project is shaping up to be pretty amazing. So don't miss the opportunity to become part of it. Now our next dive into the supernatural takes us to the state of Idaho. This is Katie's submission. Hey Derek, it's Katie from Idaho. I've called in before and I'm calling in now because I just a second ago had really weird, really short experience. I'm out walking my dog, same path I always walk across the road past the school, and I turn to look at our reflection in the mirror, like always. Well, not the mirror, the doors, they're full glass, and they reflect really well. And I turn to look, and I see us, and I also see this boy on a red and blue bike, and I make eye contact with his reflection in my turn, so that I can be like, hey, do you want to pet my dog? Because she loves kids. But she hadn't done anything. She hadn't made any acknowledgement that there was someone there. And I turn around, there's nobody here. It's a whole parking lot. There's not any hiding locations. There's some bushes, but they're in front of, they were in front of where I was. And I looked back at the window, very confused, and it was still there for about a second. I turned away again, just thinking my arms were playing tricks on me. Still nobody in the parking lot. Turned back to the doors, and it's gone. It was really weird. All the hair on my body was standing up, and that was about when my dog started to pull but she's a golden retriever, so she can pull pretty hard, and she pulled me right back towards the house. I haven't heard of any deaths at the school or anything like that or in the neighborhood recently or disappearances, but, yeah, that was weird. I'll have to go by there again some morning. Thank you for listening to my call. Thank you, Katie. Now, obviously, I cannot see the surroundings that Katie described, but if the area looks anything like what's in my imagination... I may have a bit of an idea here. Is it possible that the boy was not behind Katie, but rather in front of her? I'm thinking he may have been inside the building, riding his bike, which could explain how he was able to simply disappear. So in other words, she was seeing a real boy instead of his actual reflection. Now of course, as I always say, I was not there, so I can't definitively say that's exactly what happened but it could provide at least one logical explanation for an otherwise unexplainable encounter. So thank you, Katie, for sharing. What do you guys say we switch gears here a bit and field a call from places possibly out of this world? This entry hails from the Tar Heel State of North Carolina. Kim, the mic is yours. Well, my name is Kim. I live in the North Carolina uh, state, and this story happened to me about 12 years ago. Um, This is a true story. About 12 years ago, uh, me and my husband and my mother were in the house, and it was towards the evening time. It was a clear evening around between 6 and 8 p.m., and my mother was in her bedroom, and she kept seeing something outside. We live near the airport, so I was thinking, well, maybe she's what she's seeing is an airplane. And she just kept going on and on about it, telling me, hey, you know, come here, take a look, there's something outside. And I didn't believe her. So I grabbed my camera. This was before we had all these fancy cell phones that take video footage of everything. I had a, a digital camera. And so I ran outside, and I looked, and I didn't see anything at first. And so something just said, look up. And so I looked up, and towards the east area, there was a spaceship, a UFO. And it was not a large UFO. Um, It was about the size of three cars. And it proceeded to come towards me. 
and I would estimate that it was maybe about 50 feet in the air, and it was flat, it was rectangular, and it appeared to be sort of like a silver or whitish color, and it had about 12 lights underneath, and it was completely flat, but I could distinctly see a cockpit. And as it came, it started coming towards my direction, and it kept coming closer and closer and closer. And at that point, I started stepping back. I could look inside the cockpit, and I saw two beings, and they appeared to look human, a male and a female. I could see longer hair on one person and shorter hair on the other, but I couldn't distinctly make out their faces, but they had humanoid features. All I could remember is I just kept staring at it as it approached me, and it came closer and closer. And the next thing I knew, I was underneath it, and it flew over me. And as it flew over me, it was rather slow. It didn't stop. It just kept going. Like I stated, I was about 50 feet underneath it, so I could get pretty good detail of it. Um, It was whisper quiet. There was no smoke, no smell, no odor, no sound, absolutely nothing. And it just took off and went across the trees and completely disappeared. And so from that day forward, you know, I'm completely convinced that there are people amongst us or humanoids or aliens that look like we do that are from different planets that, you know, interact with us on planet Earth. I'll never forget that, but this really did happen. And uh, I wasn't asleep. I, you know, I had no alcohol. You know, I don't do drugs. Um, It really did happen. There's a lot of mysteries in this world. Thanks, Kim. This is an incredible account. It's not every day that someone claims to have stood 50 feet below a genuine UFO. In fact, most people that find themselves in that particular situation find that being below the UFO is the least of their worries. Many are in fact abducted from that very position. I think of the infamous case of Travis Walton, whom was abducted and held for several days back in 1975. If you're not familiar, that's a wild story that I'll save for another time. But if you're impatient, just watch the movie Fire in the Sky. That movie scared the hell out of me when I was a kid. Anyhow, I'm uh, getting off track here. The question I mean to pose is whether or not Kim was also a victim of some sort of abduction, but simply cannot recall the memory. She mentioned the following quote, The next thing she knew, the UFO was on top of her. I might be leading the witness here a bit, but that, for me, left some room for some missing time. Of course, these are mere questions asked and not claims stated. When something as extraordinary as what Kim witnessed is reported, it's difficult not to hypothesize about all the terrifying possibilities. So thank you again, Kim, for that spectacular submission. Now our next story is a bit uplifting. The following was submitted by Elizabeth from Parts Unknown. Hi, Derek. My name is Elizabeth, and I was just listening to your podcast, and I heard a gentleman named Hector call in and talk about him flying over his apartment. Now, I had something a little different, but it was flying. It was probably 19... 1980, and I was living in Lake in the Hills, Illinois. Um, Our house was set up on a tri-level. The top of the house was the living quarters. The middle ground was my dad's office, and the basement was like a full, I'd say it was completely, as far as my memory goes, it was completely redone basement with carpet and everything. I have a vivid memory of standing at the top of the stairs on the top floor, and flying down the set of stairs, turning and landing on the basement floor stairs with my feet tingling, but I definitely never touched the floor, and I have this clear-as-day vision. Now, I was four years old, so definitely something that I don't know, but I'm just telling you, I just have this feeling, and I know that it happened to me, and when I heard Hector's story, I said, that's happened to me too, so I really, truly believe that it did, I hope you can use this, and I hope it helps other people who have had this experience. Thank you so much, and have a great night. I really appreciate your podcast. We appreciate the submission, Elizabeth. 
I will confess, my entire life I've had a reoccurring dream that I too possess the ability to fly. Each time in my dream I would remember that I've always had this ability, but simply forgot how. Now I realize a dream is a dream, but these were always somehow different for me, although I've never really figured out why. Perhaps Elizabeth Hector and I have a suppressed ability that defines the laws of gravity. Or it might just be fair to say that the human mind is a wonderfully creative tool. Thanks again, Elizabeth, for that fun experience. Speaking of flying, merchandise is practically launching out of the shop, which coincidentally can be found at Monsters Among Us podcast forward slash shop, and we have several new items to add to the storefront in the next week or so. And for those that have been asking about the totes, they're here, I just need to get them up and listed along with the brand new t-shirt design that I think you guys are going to love. So give me a week or two. This stuff is coming, I promise. And it shouldn't go without saying a big thanks to everyone that's picked up a shirt already. I really appreciate that. Okay then. Well, since we're tiptoeing around the lighter side of the paranormal, why not a bit of a heartwarming ghost story as well? This is Brandon's submission from the state of Nebraska. Hi there, my name is Brandon. I am from Nebraska and just recently got into your podcast and I just have to say I love it. I kind of have a story uh, just recently here. I don't know kind of if this goes into with what you're trying to do on the podcast. It's more of a positive outlook on things rather than a scary or spooky kind of story. Uh, but recently in January of this year, 2019, one of our family cats passed away. She was kind of young considering, but she'd spent some of her time outside the early parts of her life. Therefore, it kind of shortened her life expectancy. And she passed away in our living room in my wife's arms. Uh, family cat, we loved her very much. She's the mother of all the other cats that we have. She's kind of the matriarch of the family of cats that we have. And her name was Mama Kitty because she's the mother. And after she passed away, and we have a son who's just over a year old now, and I've heard things that babies and uh, senior citizens are kind of closer to that veil between life and death and the unknown, and so they're able to see things better, such as old people seeing angels when they're about to die, or, you know, children seeing things in their closet, stuff like that. I've heard that the people on the first part and the last part of life kind of more connected with those things. Well, recently we've been seeing some flashes of gold uh, in the house, like above us um, where she used to lay in her house, her little house that she has um, that we made for is like a bed that we got. We'd look in the corner of our eye and thought we'd see her or see, uh, like I said, a flash of gold. And it's, it's kind of weird because that's kind of the color of her urn that we got for her. And the baby one night I saw this flash of gold happen above my head in the living room and I looked up and, and it was gone. I saw it and as soon as I, I focused on it, it disappeared. But the the son of mine is just staring at the ceiling where this flash of gold was giggling and laughing at his first year of life. This cat was basically like a second mother to him. He, you know, he was around this cat all the time. The cat saw him all the time. And so just recently we've been seeing these flashes of gold and wherever we see the flash of gold at, we see our son take interest in that area and he gets really excited and giggly and happy and tries to go towards it and, and, and everything like that. And we can't help but think that it's our, our cat that passed away, uh, Mama Kitty. So I just wanted to kind of give that story kind of a positive outlook on the paranormal, how we think our cat is still with us and still watching over our son and still watching over her kids and, and just still about the house and hasn't left us yet. It's just, it's just really strange to see these flashes of gold and see him focus on where we're noticing them at. And we don't see anything, but he finds such enjoyment in them. It's just, it's just really strange. So I just want to share that kind of positive outlook on possible paranormal activity in our home and everything like that. So I appreciate it. I love your podcast. I'm so happy to have become a listener. Thank you for taking the time to hear my voicemail, whether it gets shared or not. I just want to share that story with you. Thanks. Thanks, Brandon. I completely understand the bond 
To many, our pets are very important people in our lives, so it makes sense that the connection would continue after her passing. And it's not like we haven't heard these stories before. They're found in abundance in paranormal lore. But I do think it's important to point out that this may be a different entity, spirit, ghost, whatever it is you want to call it, and not your late pet. If I've learned anything from ghost hunting TV shows, it's that ghosts are often trying to conceal their identity. Imposing as a friendly mama cat just might be a perfect disguise. Thanks again, Brandon, for taking the time. And speaking of taking time, please take a few minutes to rate and review the show on your platform of choice. Now, I've seen a lot of glowing reviews lately that are accompanied by three or four stars. Don't forget, guys, this is the internet, so if it's not five stars, it's a negative review. I know, I don't like that either, but that's the way it is. Anyway, a big thank you to everyone that's taken the time to help me reach more listeners. You guys want to hear something gross? Well, I think BB in Texas might have the perfect tale to get that job done. Here is her call. Hi, Derek. This is BB. I live in Dallas, Texas. This happened when I was 13 years old, and I'm 33 now. It happened in a small town called Burnett, Texas. It's in central Texas. And... Um, basically what happened was me and my sister were playing in the backyard and we lived on 10 acres of land. We only had about one acre cleared and we had our trailer in the middle of that one acre that was cleared and we were in the backyard playing and we had about three dogs at the time and they were all chow dogs just running around and my stepdad was out in the backyard doing some work and he saw that there was something in our dog's mouth. So he told my sister to go over and get it out of his mouth because he didn't know what he was chewing on. And so my sister took it out of his mouth and screamed and dropped it on the floor. And so I walk over and I'm asking, I'm like, what, what is it? What is it? And she's like, it's a human hand. And I look down and no joke, it's a human hand. All of his skin is gone and all of the muscles and, you know, veins, everything like that is gone. But you can see the bones, you can see the tendons, everything was there. It was like from the wrist down. And my stepdad walks over and he looks at it and he tells my sister to pick it up. And my sister said no. And so he told me to pick it up and I said no. And so he told my sister again, pick it up and put it in the trash. And so my sister picks it up and puts it in the trash. We didn't call the cops or anything, but still to this day, I think that something was on our property, but we have no idea what happened. Thanks. And I have more stories I'll be calling in. That's just the weirdest, grossest one I have. Thanks and have a great day. Bye. Thanks, BB. That is gnarly. And I suppose it would be irresponsible of me not to say the authorities probably should have been notified. It doesn't take much of an imagination to picture a half-buried murder victim rotting in the Texas sun, only to have old Fido come along and, well, you can picture the rest. But I feel it would also be irresponsible of me not to mention that once degloved or Once the skin has been removed from any large mammal's paw, it closely resembles a human hand. For example, if you had a degloved black bear paw, with its claws removed, which is something hunters occasionally do when they process bear, leaving a basic structure that, to the untrained eye, could appear exactly like a human hand. I've tossed a photo up in the show notes, so check it out if you're not squeamish. Let me know what you think. That's one that'll make me think for a while. While the bear paw theory is possible, I don't know that it's any more likely than it being a genuine human hand. So think about that as you're trying to sleep tonight. Let's cleanse our palates with something a little ghostly. The following was submitted by Cassie in the state of Arizona.
Hi, this is Cassie from Phoenix, Arizona. I wanted to call and tell my story that happened a few years back, around 2010, I want to say. It happened up in the town of Payson, Arizona. It was around 4th of July, I want to say, and me my little sister, my boyfriend at the time, and my parents decided to go up to the local rodeo they have there. The day we got there, we just decided that it was too late to go do anything, so we went to a little motel right in the center of downtown, and it was, at the time, really rainy and cold and just kind of a gloomy day, so... We decided to stay in and watch movies. A little backstory about my parents is my mom is a total free spirit hippie, and my dad is about the polar opposite, and he's a very cowboy, stern, no-funny-business kind of man. It's probably around 10 o'clock at night, and me and my boyfriend and my little sister were all inside the motel watching a movie, and my parents were outside smoking. We had one of the outdoor hotel rooms and shining into our room was kind of a spotlight that was in the parking lot and since it was raining so hard and all of that we unfortunately had to deal with the spotlight going on and off and on and off and it'd happen about every 30 seconds it'd turn on and turn off at one point thunder lightning hit really hard and it kind of dimmed out our power and the tv shut off didn't think anything of it my boyfriend got up went turned the tv back on everything was fine everything was all good but the spotlight didn't come back on at the time we didn't even notice it didn't even think anything of it about 10 minutes later my parents came back in and you know we're kind of bickering about something seemed really confused and you know i asked what's up what's going on and my mom finally tells me you know we saw a ghost my dad's kind of like, mm, it can't, it can't be that, you know. And my mom describes to me what she saw or what they both saw. And what it was is the motel was at the base of a hill. And there was a street going up the hill to the neighborhood up top. And it's dark, dark as could be, pouring rain, cloudy. Uh, and my parents, you know, sitting outside, like I said, smoking, talking. And they see a woman walking down this hill. And what kind of looked to be old-fashioned western wear which they thought was a little odd but the rodeo has you know it's one of the world's oldest rodeos so they all dress up in western costumes so they're both thinking why is this woman walking in the pouring rain at 10 o'clock at night and she had kind of a weird glow to her my mom said you know it's dark out and besides the spotlight which is not shining on her it's shining back at my parents there's no light no street lights nothing So they're watching her, and she's not paying attention to them, just walking down the street. And that's when that crash of lightning and thunder happened, which turned off the spotlight and kind of freaked out my parents. You know, they'd been watching this woman walk down this hill for about 20 seconds or so. And after the spotlight went out, you know, they kind of realized, oh, you know, they go to look back at the woman, and she's not there. And like I said, the hill with the road going down a bit kind of ended right at the base of where our motel was. There's nowhere this girl could have gone. And, you know, both my parents were completely stumped. Like I said, my dad is just no BS kind of guy. And even he had told us, I don't know what we saw. I don't know where she went. I don't necessarily believe in ghosts, but that would be the closest thing I have ever seen to what we would consider a spirit. And, you know, my mom is absolutely dead set. It was a ghost. And we told her, you know, that's kind of crazy. You know, I I personally think it's circumstantial, but, you know, I was like, the lighting kind of went out, the TV shut off, and the spotlight didn't come back on. And that's kind of when we all realized, you know, the spotlight's still not back on, which it had been flicking on and off for about a solid two hours. And just the whole thing was so weird. And to this day, you know, my dad, who won't admit that what he saw was what we all think was a ghost, but it was just kind of a weird coincidence and yeah but i love the show i listen to it every day at work i appreciate all you do thanks bye thank you cassie if you think about this it sort of checks out i'm sure by now everyone has heard a theory that spirits or entities 
pull electricity from devices to manifest and communicate. Well, Doc Brown said it best. There's 1.21 gigawatts in a bolt of lightning. Although, since he pronounced gigawatts incorrectly, I'm going to double-check his work. According to windpowerengineering.com, a bolt of lightning releases an average of 10 billion watts, otherwise known as 1 gigawatt. So I'd say old Doc was close enough. To put it in perspective, one lightning strike holds enough electricity to power 56 American homes for a full day. So where am I going with all this, you ask? What is a better source of energy than a bolt of lightning? Is there a possibility that the entity Cassie's parents saw was able to manifest because of that lightning? Has anyone heard of ghostly activity being created or summoned by a lightning strike? If so, hit me up. I'd really like to hear about it. And while you're at it, be sure to share any paranormal, supernatural, or just plain strange true encounter. You can do so through the hotline at 1-888-608-NIGHT. That's 1-888-608-6444. Or you can visit the website for more submission options. From Ghost Cats to Lizard Men, this episode seems to have it all. Well, almost. But I think this submission from Alice in New Hampshire will likely check another phenomena off of our list. Here is her call. Hi, Derek. This is Alice again. I called a while ago about my experience at a New England summer camp, and my friend helped me get rid of a what I thought was a shadow man by putting her legs through it. Anyway, I was listening to the podcast trying to fall asleep tonight, and a fellow New Englander was telling his story about military thing and orbs in the sky and seeing what he thought was an alien in Maine. And that got me thinking about a story that a relative told us about another New England lake. So before I get to that, I'll zoom out and give a little bit of context. My mom's cousins, they were really close. And when my sisters and I were younger, we would go up to their lake cottage on a, a lake in New Hampshire for a weekend or so and just hang out and tube and swim and, you know, barbecue. And one of the husbands of my mom's cousins, his name was Kenny and he was an eccentric, um, really lovely guy, but just very interesting. And my sisters and I debate to this day whether or not this story is is real, but we get into really interesting, spooky conversations. Bigfoot was usually the topic that one would build a fire. And, but Kenny swore that one night when he was asleep in this particular cottage where we were all staying, he woke up to the sound of the mice traps around the, the cottage all going off. Um, it started as one, and then he was like, oh, great, they're working. We're getting rid of this rodent problem. And then he was kind of greeted with one after the other after the other to the extent that it, for all these traps being off, there would have to be, you know, an army of mice suddenly in the cottage. And he knew that wasn't true. He recalls being really apprehensive. He recalls a really bright light. And he recalls a figure in the style of a typical gray alien suddenly looming over him. And then the last thing he remembers is the, is the creature's finger touching his knee and the increasing of the bright light and an excruciating pain in his knee. And the next thing he knew, he woke up and his knee was in great pain. He eventually went to the doctor and the next morning there was apparently a little red outline of where the creature touched his knee and the doctor examined it. They were stumped. They had to do x-rays. It became a big deal. We're totally mystified by this. And the only way you could have gotten this injury is if you took a hospital grade laser. And I have no idea what that means, but that's the term he used and somehow hit your knee with it. I don't really remember details beyond that, but Kenny said it was a really terrifying experience they had to do some sort of medical procedure to fix his knee. I can't remember if there were any other experiences there, but um, yeah, it's a creepy, creepy story that my sisters and I to this day still wonder if it was true. But it's in that part of part of New Hampshire where you know, you, you wouldn't be surprised. Spooky, 
remote. Yeah, that's my tale. Love the podcast, as does everybody else. But um, yeah, I wanted to share it. And thanks for the opportunity. Have a good one. Bye. Thank you, Alice. This story gives off serious communion slash Whitley Strieber vibes. If you recall, we mentioned that book, Film and Author, in late season eight. His events taking place in nearby upstate New York. And I should mention, at first I thought this was simply a sleep paralysis case, until Alice mentioned the odd injury on Kenny's knee. Something about that detail really hit home with me. So thank you again, Alice, for sharing those stories. This is one of those that we would otherwise never have heard. Alright, these last two calls are wild, and you're going to love them. But the Kickstarter launch is not the only big news I have for the week. For those of you that use Reddit, the newest member of the Monsters Among Us team, and I suppose keeper of the subreddit, uh, everyone please welcome Joshua Morphus as a new member of the team. A huge welcome and an even bigger thank you to Joshua. So if you'd like to join that subreddit, just search Monsters Among Us and you should find it. Otherwise, check tonight's show notes. And while you're at it, hit up the rest of our social media. I've really upped my Instagram game lately. And I've also started reviewing listener-submitted videos on YouTube. I try to do at least one of those a week. So check those out. And lastly, but not leastly, the amazing community over at the Facebook group and page. The page is cool and all, but the group, well, that's where it's at. Addie, Warren, Tony, John, and Sarah have created one of the safest and most interactive paranormal groups on all of Facebook. So search Monsters Among Us podcast on Facebook and join today. And now, ladies and gentlemen, those last two calls I told you about. The first of the two is, to be honest, something I simply can't explain. So why don't we start there? The following is Billy's submission. Hello, Derek. This is Billy, repeat offender. I am coming from parts unknown, but this story happens to take place in Arkansas when in 2000 when I was 12 years old. And this one's going to be short and sweet. I'm just looking for uh, it, to see if anybody else has seen anything similar. And this time it's a cryptid. So, uh, well, I believe it was a cryptid. You can maybe help me out on this. In 2000 smartphones really hadn't become a thing and people still got together and socially I would say um, especially kids and my dad for my uh, 12th birthday bought a telescope for the kids to use outside and in rural Arkansas it's real nice to look up at the sky clear no light pollution anything like that my older brother he was 18 set up the telescope just so we could look at the moon and there's a few kids probably four my th I had three brothers and a, another family came over with uh, three kids as well. And I took my turn to look up at the moon. And I can only say I saw what I can describe as um, three dragons. And it was super, super confusing because when I first looked into this telescope, they were what appeared to be upside down. And I just couldn't understand what it was I stared at it for maybe about five to six seconds I mean they were scaly black in color fairly large and I got my brother's attention to look and he looked into the scope called my dad he came over and looked and at that time he said he didn't see anything and I looked back in there and I don't know whether they just flew into the darkness or maybe onto the other side but after years and years of pondering like why would they be upside down I was thinking maybe it was a reflection or I, I just couldn't put my fingers on it but now older I think that they appeared to be upside down or as if you were looking down on them is because they were maybe flying on the moon I have not heard anybody else mention anything ever and that's why I'm sharing this story to see if uh I'm just playing crazy, or if anybody else has had the just any experience of any sort along that lines. Of, so uh, thank you again for your podcast, and you have a good day. Thanks, Billy. We can file this one under stories too crazy to be true, but somehow 
still feel real. I highly doubt there's a species of dragon or any other reptile for that matter living on the moon. So how else do we explain what Billy saw? One thought that I will entertain is that Billy's father saw the gift of the telescope as an opportunity to add a little magic to some kids' lives. It wouldn't take a ton of work to sell an effect like that to children. But looking at this from another angle, I wonder if this is truly the only experience with these strange dragon-like creatures, or if like Cassie's lightning strike apparition, some listeners out there may have some insight on this story. Now I'm very interested in this story, but I suspect there's probably a logical explanation. We just haven't figured it out yet. So thank you again, Billy. It was a great entry, and hopefully, I'm wrong. Okay, guys. We're down to our last call of the evening, and you're really going to enjoy this one. The following story should have been included in the first responder special last week, but I wanted to spend a little more time on it. So without further delay, the following was submitted by a man named Sue from the state of California. Hey Derek, you just call me Sue, boy named Sue. I'm calling about the uh, first responders, and uh, I want to start off by talking about Scotty's call on the Halloween episode about Colterville, California, where he found a coyote school. I am from the area, uh, Mariposa, California, a little bit south of there. Coyote man in the area, from what I understand, is a Sierra Miwok spirit or being that they kind of cursed the area with when they lost Yosemite area. And it's known to be a trickster and whatnot, and will lure you out of campsites and, you know, use your family's voices or your mom's voice or your dad's voice and so on and so forth. And, you know, I like to think that you could, you know, leave a pristine coyote skull out in the field so someone would pick it up and toy with them, hence the bad dreams or whatever he had. So getting back to my story, this is for the first responder deal. I'm a subcontractor for Cal Fire, working on a crew where we run heavy equipment, you know, excavators and dozers, doing fire lines and clean up and stuff after all the fires go through or during a fire. So it was 2018 in July, and we were working in Mariposa, California, our hometown, on the Ferguson fire, and we're out in the Jerseydale area. You know, we're up on a ridge, and we're heading down the hill and facing north. I'm pretty sure it's north. And these ridges are very, have steep exposures on both sides, but they're pretty wide, you know, between 150 yards to 80 yards at the narrowest. And we're pushing down as far as we can to get a fire line put in. And I'm a swamper, so I'm working out in front of the guy operating the dozer, you know, 50 yards to 80 yards out in front of him. And uh, we have closed circuit walkie-talkies. So it's just me and him communicating on them, and the agencies don't have to hear our banter. We have a scanner, so he has all the ears that the, the Cal Fire or Park Service or Forest Service needs us to get out of there. They contact him, and he'll call me back. So we're making our way down this ridge when uh, he keys up the mic and says, hey, dude, come back to the tractor. So I'm thinking in my head, it's time to hightail out. Fire had changed direction or whatnot. Fire was burning up from our right, up the ridge a little bit in a small area where it's not too much of a hot area right now. The fire is more in a different area. To our left, it kind of had already burned down that ridge. And uh, so I think the fire may have changed direction, a wind change. It's going to happen that we don't know about. We're getting out of here. So I get up on the cab of the tractor, <clears throat> I'm leaning the window, and he goes, dude, do you see that down there? So I'm looking down, I can make a silhouette of, of a person, it seems, and it's coming from our right, and it's kind of slowly moving up the ridge. And at first, in my mind, I was thinking, you know, one of the hotshot crews or something is coming up to us, maybe they're coming with us to get out of here. And uh, as I'm looking down, it kind of stops, and I'm starting to get a frame of reference of how big it is some of the obstacles I had seen next to bushes and trees and stumps that were down there. And they had it been standing seven, eight feet tall, probably. And I started to get a little bit spooked out, considering the whole local ledge was a coyote man. I'm like, it's time to get out of here, man. Started getting scared. And as it starts moving again, it makes its way diagonally across the ridge, kind of getting closer to us as it walks by. Our dozer has big LED lights all over it. 
So it's lit up, but there's smoke in there, so you can't really make out too much stuff. As it's getting closer, though, it gets easy to see it. And it's not like a dog man or that kind of stuff. It has very human-esque features and a build. And as it walks past us, it's like a kind of like a darkish brown color it looked to be, but almost looked charred like it had made its way to the fire, like the fire had pushed it out. And it, as it walks past us, it gives us gives you like the scold of like, you know, your parents or something being almost disappointed in you. And which, you know, we're knocking trees over and tearing up the earth and destroying its environment if it is out there living. And it just kind of kept on walking and walked down this this ridge off to the left. And, you know, these ridges are pretty steep exposures. We hunt the area and stuff like that. And it can take me a couple hours to get up and down some of these. And it made its way like it was, it was nothing. So as we went and looked at the tracks of this bipedal animal we saw, from all the dirt we had turned up with the dozer, it was kind of almost a powdery substance, you know. We call it moon dust up here. And you, you couldn't really make anything out, but you can tell there's big oppressions. The bipedal movement, had the toes had kicked out like it was being aggressive in its walk. It wasn't being real easy on its feet. Like it was trying to move fast, but it really couldn't, which, you know, could be an injury from the fire or whatnot. We don't know what it is, but there is lure from this area that there's Bigfoots and then the Coyote Man and all of that. And we're not far from the Sierra Camp stories of Ron Moorhead, who actually used to live in this same town. And I've had conversations with him about this stuff. And, you know, it's all a little interesting and stuff. That's my story with whatever I encountered, if it was the Coyote Man or Bigfoot or just a big, hairy guy in the woods. Who knows? But that's my story, my first responder incident. Have a great day and thank you for a good show, Derek. Thank you, Sue. I love the name, and I love that song. Okay, so let's be honest, that's a lot to digest. So let's address one topic at a time. This Coyote Man thing, well, it's news to me. Although I can't say I'm all that surprised. Not only is the Coyote considered a trickster by many cultures of Native Americans, but they also spoke of a man-like version of this beast. The stories depicted the creature having a man-like body, but with coyote fur, eyes, and ears. Basically, a coyote head. That's about the extent of what I was able to dig up. But just one more thing. You see, I found a few first-hand encounters, although neither really sell me on the legend. The first was reported to Lon Strickler over at Phantoms and Monsters and was reported from Silverton, Colorado. Apparently, a couple was driving down the road passing cornfields on either side of the road, and a strange coyote jumped out in front of the car, causing the driver to lock up the brakes. The couple described the creature as odd-looking, with tight skin and human-like eyes. What happens next is insane. The animal disappears into the corn, only to re-emerge seconds later as a naked man. I've linked to that story in the show notes. And the other first-hand encounter is more in line with the legends. Our good friends over at Beyond Creepy on YouTube have a video dedicated to another encounter that sounds quite similar to the legend. To summarize it, a family in Oklahoma saw an upright creature in their backyard. It had yellow eyes and looked like an upright coyote. It saw the family on the back porch and ran away. I've also linked to Beyond Creepy's video, so be sure to check that out if this kind of story suits you. Now, I do my best to be logical and reasonable without ruining the magic of all this. Because, quite frankly, just because something isn't likely to exist doesn't mean it can't. But what I'm rambling towards is that I'm not buying the Coyote Man as a cryptid. I struggle enough with Dog Man and the Beast of Bray Road. So instead, I think this is just a mythical character and less of a creature of the night. The Coyote was the perfect character to blame when things suddenly go south. Always the trickster. But then again, like Sue mentioned, what is more trickster than convincing someone to take a haunted skull home? I certainly know I would have lugged it back if I stumbled upon it. Well guys, we'll have to dissect the Bigfoot portion of this call at a later time, because my time is up. Thank you again, Sue, for that submission. Monsters Among Us is written and produced by me. Derek Hayes. Additional support is provided by Addie Lloyd and Sarah Carter Hayes. The spooky track that you're hearing? That's code.ag. Thank you so much for listening, and until next week.
Oh, come on. Did you really think I wasn't going to talk about Sue's Bigfoot sighting? Of course I have to discuss this, but I'm short on time, so I'm moving the content over to the secret portion of the show. Now believe it or not, there's still many people out there that turn the episode off before this segment, so I'm pleased that you're here with me. Now when I heard Sue's story, it rang a bell. I was actually on a television show a few years back called In Search of Monsters. It was my very first appearance and I was less than stellar, so I doubt I'm in it much. But as part of the research they required we do, there was a story from a place called Battle Mountain, Nevada. A story not unlike Sue's. The following letter was supposedly written by an anonymous government employee and submitted to the BFRO, the Bigfoot Field Research Organization, on August 7th of 1999. The letter refers to an August 6th, 1999 forest fire on Battle Mountain in Nevada. The following is a portion of that letter. I observed an animal wounded by fire moving on all fours, not like a bear, more like an ape. Firefighters captured the animal, then contacted a local vet, medical doctor, the U.S. Department of Fish and Wildlife, the Department of Interior, and a Bureau of Land Management, and got them on the scene. The animal was tranquilized and moved to an unknown location. Those at the scene were told not to talk about what they saw. The animal was approximately seven and a half feet tall, with human-like arms and legs, and a face not like a man or an ape, but mixed between. The genitalia, male, uncircumcised, and human-like, hair covering most of the body except the chest. The chest has hair but sparse, hands with sparse hair as well. The palms were bare, but with five digits and an opposable thumb. It attempted to communicate with caregivers once it realized they were attempting to care for it. Multiple burns on the hands, feet, and body, some second and third degree. Using the rule of nines, approximately 45% of the body was covered in burns. Now I've linked to this actual article in tonight's show notes. I highly recommend everyone sit down and read it. Now I'm certainly not saying that I believe anything that I'm reading in this particular article. But if you think about it, if a creature like this exists, surely a few would perish in a fire from time to time. And naturally, you would think someone would come upon one. In other words, this is a story that I would expect to hear if the Bigfoot was real. Now, I certainly can't speak to the validity of either stories, but there are other tales like this out there, so make of that what you'd wish. But for now, thank you, Sue. I really enjoyed your entry. And thank you for sticking around to the end of the program. Have a great night.